I'm Katie McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. Every morning on the way to school, we drive past a Catholic church. It was actually the Catholic church that I grew up going to. It's where I went to school, where my husband and I were married, where my kids have been baptized. So we drive right past Our Lady Queen of Heaven on the way to get to St. Margaret's, where my kids go to school. And a few months ago, and it was right at the the turn from Lent to Easter, as we drove past one morning, the gardener for the parish was outside working in the lawn, and there was a group of men changing out the flags in front of the parish. There's this row of flagpoles, six flagpoles, three on each side, with liturgical colored flags that fly during the various liturgical seasons. And literally all, at that point, 33 years of my life, growing up in that parish and now driving past that parish 10 times a week to and from school, I'd never seen this changing of the flags. And he was changing them over from purple to white. And I thought to myself, oh, well, yeah, we're about to be in the Triduum. It was the Wednesday before Holy Thursday. I guess we would shift from purple to white because we're moving from Lent to Triduum and then to Easter. And as I was kind of thinking to myself, well, wait a second, aren't we supposed to have purple on Good Friday? Is he really going to change the flags to Holy Thursday white, then back to purple for Good Friday, then back to white for Holy Saturday? Man, that's a lot of flag work that this poor group of guys has to do. And I'm kind of having this internal conversation with myself about the flags at the parish. My daughter piped up from the back. Mom, look at the flag guys. And I said, yeah, buddy. She said, what are they doing? So I explained to her, by this point, of course, we've already passed by the church, that, well, they're changing it because of the colors of the season. She got really quiet. She said, does that mean father's outfit's going to change too? And I said, yeah. And she said, oh, good. He really doesn't look good in purple. And I nearly snorted my coffee out of my nose as I started laughing so hard. That for weeks, my daughter had been critiquing father's color profile up on the altar. I got a bit of a kick out of it. I was noticing the flags and having this internal theological debate about when the colors had to be put up. She was laughing at the fact that she was relieved father was finally going to stop wearing purple because it really doesn't match his, his skin. It was kind of amusing. But it revealed something deeper that I don't even think I'd really noticed at that point. And it was the fact that my child had even noticed the color of father's chasuble. That she had noticed that perhaps there was no water in the holy water font. That there was barren stick type decor in front of the altar instead of a flourishing of flowers. That maybe she'd made note of some of those specific changes within the church and even within the colors of the flags flying in front of another parish, that it was something that she had acknowledged. I didn't realize she'd noticed it. But that's the thing. We do, whether we realize it or not, we do notice those shifts, those changes, sometimes very subtle. Flags in front of the church, Father's chasuble, the flowers in front of the altar. Sometimes it's parish offerings, whether it's 
an added daily mass in the season of Lent, or we're going to do a specific Bible study as a parish in the season of Advent, or hey, we're in ordinary time, and so our, our parish is going to focus on how we can do more works of social justice. Whether we realize it or not, there are these ebbs and flows, these shifts within the year happening within our parish communities. And it's, of course, Expect it to happen in our parish communities. Yes, they're going to change the color of the flags. Of course, Father's Chasuble is going to change color. Why wouldn't they change the types of flowers or the various offerings of parish ministries? That's literally the church's job. But if we understand what it means to be the church and begin to recognize and more fully understand that the church is not a building, church happens in a building, but that we are the church and that church, in fact, is us as believers participating in the mystical body of Christ, well, then we start to maybe acknowledge that these changes happen with colors, with decor, with programs, with prayers, with traditions. These changes happen at church. So maybe there should be some changes. There should be some specific behavior. There should be things that we do at home within our domestic church. We've done a series on Ave Explorers all about Catholic family life, and it was a beautiful series where we really dug into what it means to live as a domestic church. And we're, we're taking that kind of one step further. What does it mean to actually live the liturgical year as a domestic church? What, what does it look like to not just notice the changing of the flags in front of the Catholic parish and the fact that Father's chasuble is now going to be white instead of purple or green instead of white, but, but what would it look like if maybe some colors changed within our own home? And maybe some of the things we talked about at the dinner table, some of the decor that we set out on our mantle, some of the activities that we did over the course of our week, even the meals that we prepare, what if that was in rhythm with the flags that change at church, with the chasuble that Father now wears, with the prayers that we're praying all throughout the liturgy? What if liturgical living was a part of my life? And not just I go to church and I attend the liturgy, but that I live the liturgy and, and quite literally take those words to heart, go forth, the mass has ended, Yes, it has, thanks be to God, and now that mass, that liturgy, that experience can begin in my home. That's what this entire season is really going to dig into. And I'm so excited about the season, and I know I say that every season. I'm so excited about the great people that we get to chat with, but I'm so, so pleased with the incredible lineup of people that we were able to really pin down for this season to sit down, to pick their brains, to learn about the various liturgical living ministries that they've begun, about the ideas that they've created, about the books that they've written, about the products that they sell, but ultimately to hear how the liturgical life of the church has become a part of their own lives, giving some incredible practical advice and tips about how to live the liturgical year, everything from various traditions to incorporate within the home, to simple things that you can create and buy, pointing to, hopefully, a snapshot, a deep dive, as we are wanting to say here at Ave Explorers, a look at liturgical living really at, at every different level. 
the the type of liturgical living where every single feast day is acknowledged and celebrated menu-wise, decor-wise, activity-wise, or, or the very, what I like to call entry-level liturgical living, which is what we do in my family. Hey, we write a Bible verse on the chalkboard in the kitchen, and we say a specific prayer according to that particular feast day that's that's there. And, and you know, we, we, we make cupcakes and we stick a cupcake topper inside and say, yay, Jesus ascended into heaven, right? There's so many different ways to engage in the liturgical life of the church. And over the course of these episodes, we're talking with people who share their stories of doing this, share their insights into why the church operates in this rhythmic way, and what that really means for our own pursuit of holiness. Now, that's a big, long lead-up into our first episode, which, at first glance, you might say, wait a second, we're, we're going to talk to somebody who invented a planner to talk about liturgical living? Yes, we are. And it's actually one of the best conversations I've ever had with a guest here on this show. We are people who like to create routines and rhythms and systems for ourselves, often in the name of productivity. And we do that sometimes even with the liturgical year. But what would it look like if we pursued productivity, major air quotes around that word, what would it look like if we pursued holiness by recognizing there's a, a slowness to life, a rhythm to life, a peace that we're called to find? Stephen Lawson is a genius and an incredible guy to talk to, a creator of a product that has revolutionized the way people pray, the way people plan, the way people work. Monk Manual has impacted hundreds of thousands of people and has really been a great gift in my own life. I use Monk Manual every single week to kind of map out, okay, these are priorities, but also these are ways that I need to pray. These are things that I need to focus on within my spiritual life. Here's what the church is doing already. Stephen is a great guy with some great insights, and I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. And before we jump right into it, I do want to remind you that Ave Explores is forever free. This is a podcast. We have various conversations happening across our social media platforms. You can go to AveMariaPress.com right now and click on Ave Explores right at the top of the website and sign up to get the emails for this podcast right into your inbox. There's also a great giveaway basket that you can enter to win including a discount code for the brand new Living the Seasons from Erica Ty Campbell, a guest later on this season of Ave Explores. We really want this podcast this season to be incredibly useful to you, to be edifying, to be challenging, to be encouraging. So make sure you sign up for those emails. You don't want to miss anything when it comes to this series. But for right now, we're so grateful that you're here. and We want you to sit back and enjoy this conversation with Stephen Lawson, founder of Monk Manual, here on this brand new season of Ave Explores. Steve, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Is it Steve or Steven? What do you prefer? It doesn't matter, but Steve's, Steve's great. Well, welcome to Ave Explores. It's great to have you. Introduce yourself to our listeners. You're you a are brand new guest. We have never had you on Ave Explores before, and I'm so excited to get to pick your brain and learn a little bit about your story. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. My name is Steve Lawson. I live in Buffalo, New York with my wife and three kids. I am also the founder of a company called Monk Manual that is based on creating tools and resources to help individuals uh, thrive in what we call whole person productivity. So rather than productivity that's normally really kind of more based off of an assembly line model for the human person, we're trying to serve the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. So 
that's that's what I spend the majority of my time on. And then I also do some coaching primarily with entrepreneurs uh, in a similar space. Where did that idea come from? Because I, I, I love that. I am I read the Getting Things Done book in, in college and it changed my life on like how to approach task management. But this is whole person task management. Where'd that idea come from? Yeah, it's 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 an interesting question. Uh, and I can be fairly verbose. So I'll give a really short version of it. I, I was really into productivity for a, peer, a portion of my life, reading all the books, getting all the articles in my inbox, reading the, the 100 best tips of the most productive people magazines <laughs> at the bookstore. So I was really into it. And I was trying to uh, become more and more efficient and get all the things done. But what I ended up realizing was that things were just moving faster and faster. And I, I, I was, I was getting a lot done, but it wasn't necessarily aligned with the deeper sense of purpose. And ultimately, I didn't feel the peace I was expecting that I was going to feel. I, it actually happened where I remember one time I was, I was lying in bed at night and had this experience where it's kind of like, man, where did the day go? Because I was moving so fast, and I just had this realization that what I was why I was so into productivity was because I was looking for peace and that uh, it was actually having the exact opposite effect. Around the same time, I was reading the work of this guy, Dr. Martin Seligman, who uh, used to be the head of the American Psychological Association. But he's got this interesting idea around uh, positive psychology, which isn't isn't like, hey, let's think positive about about mm -hmm. things so much as it's... Um, it's it's based off this idea that most psychology has traditionally been focused on uh, maybe negative sim symptoms and negative experiences of life and, and problems that people encounter. And he really wanted to figure out what are the things that lead to uh, human flourishing? Like what are the things that rather from going from a negative standpoint, what are the things that actually contribute to really healthy uh, psychology or human flourishing, right? And so I encountered that. And then I saw this interesting connection between the work that was done there and some of these other things I've been reading, encountering, and just the way that monasticism is set up. It's almost a system of life designed around what helps people flourish. And I was really interested in the idea of how we could take some of the principles of monasticism and port them over to everyday life. I'll, I'll give a really quick analogy, uh, you know, because even when I first launched the Monk Manual, we would run some different ads and things on social media and people would sometimes write like, this sounds great, but I have a car and my kids go to school and like, there's no way I like, they, they would look at what monks are doing as a totally separate thing. But what was inspiring to me is like, if you think of a high chair or a lazy boy or uh, a couch, uh, the actual form is very different, but the function is very similar. It's mm -hmm. to sit on, right? And the idea was, what is the function of monasticism? Like, what is the function of, uh, of, of even like the, something like the rule of St. Benedict? Like, what was the intention behind some of the things that were going on there? And how can you live that out in the world? And so you'll actually see that the monk manual, which is the primary, that's kind of our flagship product. It's this 90-day planner. I mean, in form, it, it actually doesn't look or feel anything similar to becoming a monk, right? I, I mean, there are some things that it, when you engage it, you'll see, oh, there's, I see where this came from or that came from. But um, but yeah, it was more so trying to get to the deeper functional element. So I was just really inspired by it. I think part of it was I had realized how I personally had really uh, lost a lot of my own sense of peace. I think I noticed how a lot of people sometimes like just are chasing something their whole life and and I don't know, there's there's something really 
deeply inspiring to me about how individuals can live in a more grounded, receptive way, more of a spiritual integration between their active and their spiritual life. One of the things that was really inspiring to me at the time and still is really inspiring to me is, you know, Catholics, one of the things that's really amazing about Catholicism is is, is the sacraments, but it also uh, that can sometimes lead to, at, through formation, I think a very event-based spirituality. Mm-hmm. So a feeling of like, we have our spiritual life over here. We do this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing. And then we have the rest of our life. And what was really inspiring to me about monks is like, that's not how it works for them, right? It's like all integrated. It's just one life that's active and spiritual, right? So for me, even in my spiritual life, like this is as much about as part of my spiritual life. This call is like any other thing. I mean, some things are going to be elevated, but... Uh, I don't know. It's not like God's in a box somewhere, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, an integration, I think, leads to intentionality. Like there's yes. like if everything has a, a rhythm and that's one of the things I've loved about the monk manual. It, it, it's like none of it is just like, let me time block my day, which a lot of planners. It's like, oh, okay, I write my, my top three goals for the day. I'm going to respond to this email. I'm going to make sure I record this podcast and then I'm going to pick my kids up from school and we're going to have dinner. Like, okay, those are perfectly fine things I can put on a sticky note, but that I'm being invited to think about, okay, what's a spiritual practice of the day that I want to focus on? Or what's this thing throughout the course of the week that I really need to, a virtue, you know, we've used it with our kids to talk about virtues. And that has made our productivity matter in a different way. You mentioned that you were obsessed with productivity. You were reading all these books. You were listening to these different psychologists, like trying to understand kind of the human psyche of, I want to be able to get more done. Let's talk about why you think that that has kind of hit our society. And it's 2023. I feel like in 2023, that obsession with productivity is different today than it even was three years ago at the beginning of COVID or even five years before that. Why do you think human beings want to be efficient? And why does that ultimately maybe lead to a lot of discontent in our lives? I love that you just asked that question. So <laughs> We're going to get nerdy in this because, yeah, no, again, this is, I'm obsessed in the same way. <laughs> this is something I'm really, really, really passionate about. So you actually see the word productive skyrocket in popularity between about 1716 and 1820, which is the Industrial wow. Revolution, right? Yeah. So uh, the thing is, I'm a really big believer that what ended up – so when I was taught the Industrial Revolution as a kid, right, whatever it was, fifth grade or something, <laughs> yeah, uh, and, you, and you learn it – Yeah, you learn it as this thing where it's this cool kind of, oh, there's all this innovation going on and efficiencies. And it actually sounds really cool. In some ways, it is cool, right? But what's happening during that time is there's there's really – there's a shift. There's there's philosophical thinking that's changing. I actually think you can trace most of this back to the Enlightenment. We would have to spend three hours to work (laughs) through that. And maybe we have that conversation at some point because it's a really, really interesting (laughs) conversation. Uh, But but ultimately, there's this – there's this shift in value to production for production's sake as mm. being really valuable. So these the, these systems are created uh, in ways of doing things that best serve production, right? Now, part of what's part of that system, it's not just machines, it's also human beings, right? All, human beings are part of this larger system of uh, commoditization in some ways. And uh, I think that that model then began to impact a lot of other things. Like we could have a conversation of how that's impacted even things like education today. Mm-hmm. Uh, how Because there's there's definitely some assembly line uh, similarities there. Uh, it, it's it's really pervasive. But I think over time, although a lot of people nowadays, there, I mean, we still have a a, a fairly robust um, factory system here in the in the in the United States. But I think proportionally, there's probably less people working in those in those scenarios. Uh, than than there were previously, but but it's there's a shift in when that shift in value moved toward production, 
in this adoption of this uh, assembly line thinking came into play, I think that's really pervaded a lot of uh, the trajectory of culture over time. And I think that actually right now it, it pervades, in a sense, everything. Like the thing that has been kind of uh, surprising for me, and I'm honestly like this is this is nothing about the monk manuals theoretical. It's it's like something that comes out of my own walk, right? Like I'm so super passionate about all of it because these are like the questions I'm living through. And so I'm still trying to figure all these things out. But there's a there's a real deep sense I have that even this productivity model has really even shaped the way that Christians, Catholics experience their faith today that that like we can't actually even see. Do you know what I'm saying? Like this production-based mindset even even informs very strongly how we relate to God. Like you think if you think of uh you think of this production-based mindset, you also think of um the fact that since we were, so this is another thing that's really interesting. At a certain point, because uh, efficiency got so much better, there were actually a lot of people who were concerned that production was going to outpace demand. And that's really what marketing came out of. Marketing came out of this this uh, this way of trying to figure out how to get people to buy things that ultimately they didn't need. It wasn't that uh, broad stroke, right? But since since I've been born, I've been having messages every single day telling me I'm not okay unless I have this thing or I do this thing or this or that. And that's the primary noise that we're hearing in our life, right? So then when you think about trying to bring in spiritual practices, you try to bring in, uh, how does that impact our way of relating to God? I think it's really profound and it's very difficult to, for us to grasp because like we're we're swimming in it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, that you said we don't even realize how it's affecting it. I was just having a conversation the other day with the uh, the associate pastor at our parish and he was saying, I, th- I feel like we just need to be doing more. We need to be doing more for moms. We need to be doing more for men. And I'm like, yeah, I agree. But also, like, mass is good. Like, we should just get people to mass. Like, that is the primary <laughs> way of worship. Like, all these other extra programmatic things that we think give value to the church. It, it, it even happens in the whole liturgical living ideology. Like, oh, well, I need to do this craft, or I need to cook this meal, or I need to have this piece of art hanging in the in the kitchen so that my children know this is the liturgical season. And those things help, but that's not the ultimate end goal. But we think being productive or being efficient in that way or having that object will get us to that, that perfect level. When you realize this it had happened, and maybe your own life was happening in your family's life, was happening in other people's lives, your response was, okay, let's use this integrated life of the monks to help people figure out, quite honestly, what the monk manual has done for me, to pump the brakes, to just take a beat and think about what I'm actually doing, which is necessary, but is not who I am. Like what I do is not who I am. And so if I can put that in proper order, I live a happier life. H- how did you go about developing that? Tell us kind of that story of of sitting down and sketching out that first that first layout and then talking to people about what you wanted to do with this, where you kind of laughed out the room, like, Oh, that's silly. Like, what was that all like? Yeah. 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 I love these questions. So, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll work backwards. It was interesting. Cause when I, when, when, when the idea came to me to build the monk manual, there's, there's so many levels to it. Again, we have a limited amount of time, but there's, there's a lot more going on. There are things even going on in my own spiritual life that made me feel like this was the, the right thing. But, um, I felt very convicted in the monk manual and what it could do and more broadly in the fact that monks were going to be a part of uh, maybe some sort of cultural shift uh, that could and I believed would happen, not necessarily through 
the monk manual, but just that there's there's that there is something brewing around that, and that monks were really really powerful uh, archetypes on a spiritual level because they're probably the only universally positive spiritual archetype that exists in the West. Like you even think of Jedi's and Star Wars, they're basically just warrior monks, yeah. right? And in most, there's really not baggage around monks, right? There's baggage around preachers, there's pastors, priests. I mean, to varying degrees. But if you're going to go just to like the secular marketplace, that's 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 the case, right? So I think that there's something about about monks. A lot of the people who are close to me uh, couldn't really see it because it is kind of a weird mm. thing. Like <laughs> maybe it's not, <laughs> uh, but I think for a lot of people. It's definitely novel. Like the idea of combining monks with productivity, it's not a like natural right. um, connection, uh, which I also saw as like one of the opportunities that was in it, right? It's like one of those things that I felt like I, I, I had kind of seen something that I wanted to share. And then the process for it was I started to go and develop because I was so familiar with a lot of these different tools. I was trying to develop something that would help people in a sense simplify down because what you were even describing with like say liturgical living or all the different demands, it's like one of the difficulties of being human is like we're a finite people with seemingly infinite demands. And it's more now than I feel like any other period of time because we're just more aware of all the different things that should be done. A hundred years ago, you weren't necessarily aware of the person on the other side of the country who was struggling with this or that. Now you are. So there's there's so many demands and there's so many things we feel like we should be doing. So it prioritization becomes really important, getting really clear on what's important and what's not. Because at the end of the day, the simplicity of a monk is really just, a, it's a movement towards a greater, it's a lot of no's for a greater yes. So it's about figuring out like, what are those things that you want to say no to so that you can make the greatest yeses for the things that matter most. And then also I wanted to integrate a heavy reflective component yeah. um, because there's a sense I have that a lot of times like we can just get trapped in this like cycle of busy, like it's just like there's just a tyranny of urgency and we feel like we're like, okay, I got to get this done, got to get this done, got to get this done. And we're we're so caught in that treadmill that we can never actually pull ourselves out and make sense of what actually matters here and what doesn't. So, so the idea of just moving a little bit slower, of slowing down, of reflecting, it's kind of like that measure twice, cut once mentality. But I wanted to incorporate uh, this reflective component. And one of the things that, especially if people are coming from a Catholic contest, they'll know is, is a lot of the reflective components actually very closely mirror the Ignatian examine. Yeah. So the idea was to kind of integrate someone's active life with these questions of just paying attention, kind of mm -hmm. like that idea of pondering, of like what's taking place here, right? Because I, I believe personally that like there's always something going on. Like there's always uh, lessons for us to be learned. And there is, uh, this is, I've never talked about this, but this is something that I've played around with. There's even this idea of like Lectio Divina. Mm -hmm. And I, and this idea that I'm really fascinated in is almost like a living Lectio, like, like not even what God's doing in scripture, but what is God doing like in our actual life? Like, what does it look like to contemplate that? Because I think that that's, um, there's a, a lot of richness there. And life actually becomes extremely meaningful when you can operate in that way. It, it's like a, it's like taking something that's very low uh, coloration and all of a sudden turning up all the color. It, yeah. it, it just feels totally, totally different. And there's a vitality to that, which I think then also trickles down and that's attractive to other people. When people live like that, when they live in a full way, that's very attractive. So you asked the simple question. I told you I'm a little verbose, so I just, <laughs> I just keep no, going. No, I, well, I, I'm thinking of specifically how 
So like at our dinner table, which is where as a family we sit down at the end of a day and then we start it eight hours later again. We're right back at that kitchen table talking about the day that's about to come. And it's so easy for families. It's so easy for just an individual sitting at their desk to run to that next thing. That tyranny of urgency line is so great because there is this demand. I feel like I say to my kids constantly, hurry up. Because there's something else we have to do. We have to put on the shoes to get out the door, to get in the drop-off line. And then I need them to hop out the car as quickly as possible because I have to be back for an interview at 8 a.m. or whatever it is. We're constantly moving. The liturgical year actually forces us to slow down. Nope, today we're only going to focus on this one saint. Or, you know, this weekend we're only going to read this one gospel. Your products have helped people integrate that into their daily life. Tell us how you do that with your own kids, maybe, a little bit. I know you've got the Sprout Journal, which we use at our kitchen table, not nearly as much as we should, to, to do those reflection questions and to and to talk through some of these these invitations to ponder those different parts of the day. But as you started to do this on the professional side, you're creating these products, you're thinking about these things very deeply. Are you using them at home? Were you kind of like testing them out on, on you and your wife and your kids to figure out, does this actually work or am I am I just kind of hopeful? What What impacts did you see? Yeah, well, I, you know, I'll say I'll say part of it is also everything everything that I've created comes out of in a sense like who who, who I am. It's it's almost like if you listen to a song by an artist, you you know a lot about the artist if they wrote the song and they played the song because it's it's revealing something about them. So mm-hmm. a lot of what's there, like if you were to take the Sprout Journal for example, a lot of those questions are things. I actually think all the questions, the prompts are things that I developed in at, at different points. And so, yeah, we we have done the the Sprout Journal and work through that with 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 the kids. And we'll, we'll often actually do something similar during dinner time where we will uh, engage, ask questions. My kids. So I think part of it is it depends on how old someone's kids are. Yeah, I haven't reached the teenage years yet <laughs> uh, for my youngest daughter. It's interesting because I feel like my prerogative often is trying to make her feel like know that I'm rejoicing in her in a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my other two, uh, so I have two boys. One is eight and the other is 10. I find myself often asking them a lot of questions. And even in the 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 spiritual space, uh, in their faith life, asking questions, trying to create a place for them to enter in. I was really inspired by our kids previously, when we used to live in another city, went to a Montessori school that had a really robust um, catechesis of the Good Shepherd program. And if you've ever sat in on those, they're really beautiful because mm-hmm. it's really based off this idea that kids are born almost like naturally contemplative. And so it's it's like if you can just create the space and, and ask them questions, they will come to discover and sometimes provide some of the most profound wisdom. There's actually a story I'd heard. I don't know if it's true. I think it's true about uh, <laughs> uh, St. John Paul II, who actually visited a Montessori classroom and just watched for a while during one of these catechesis, the uh, Good Shepherd going on. And it's incredible. Like you listen, they'll be going through and talking about the lost sheep and the kids will be saying what they think it was like to be that sheep. And and at the end, supposedly he had said that that was that was the most beautiful sermon he'd ever heard, right? Mm. And I think it's actually true, like if you experience it. So there's there's something there's something about that. Um, you know, a, a lot of the stuff that we do is is fairly uh common. It's things that I I was raised with where it's it's almost like the basics. Like I feel like anyone who achieves uh, how do I put this? It's like the basics are kind of the basics for a reason. If that makes sense, yeah, you know what I mean. Like, I think I think that one of the most common practices that Catholics will do with their kids is like, 
prayer before bed, right? And I think that there's a reason for that. I think there's things like the mass and there's there's um there's there's a lot of those types of things that I think can go really really uh, far away. I, I want to like say one one more piece on that is one of the things is like specifically if you look at uh say like Benedictine spirituality, you'll actually notice that it's pretty hard back. What I mean by that is it's not there's not a lot of stuff you have to do. Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty open. You know what I mean? Like they don't even have like, hey, you you have to wear like a rosary around your hip here. <laughs> this like it's it's really yeah. meant to almost be open space, and there there can be flexibility. So I would say that a lot of it is a bit more almost like intuitive uh, and uh, changes over time. But that also is maybe partly my my personality. You know, yeah. I, I think that it depends on what works for different people. Yeah. So my um listeners will know this my sister has been discerning with the sisters of life and will be entering soon and i was a little surprised when she told me it was them i was like i mean mm-hmm. you're pro-life that's great and she's like well there's so much more than just pro-life nuns right they have this whole ministry of presence and like obviously yes they work to enhance and defend the dignity of human life but the thing that she loved about their life was their prayer because it is so simple morning mass mm-hmm. holy hour they're in not profound silence, but mostly in silence all morning long. And then their productivity and work begins after lunch. And I, I was kind of struck by, oh, that is actually really simple. Like their day starts not with, okay, I gotta take care of my emails. I gotta make these phone calls. We've got women coming to the building. It's nope, we're gonna we're gonna be quiet and kind of let the day unfold in this very intentional way. And that is what attracted her because she had not had that in in life like we don't do mm-hmm. that in our i mean we're doing this interview first thing in the morning because that's when our schedule's aligned mm-hmm. which you said you said something i think these two phrases match together perfectly we live in a tyranny of urgency but yet we're born naturally contemplative why do you think we lose that natural contemplation and end up people so darn concerned with what i'm doing like how how do we get from we're born in this I can approach life open to oh no 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 I've got to I've got to put my head down and just get my stuff done. That is such a good question. <laughs> and the reason I love it is because like these are the questions I would I like ask myself and you just asked one that I haven't really <laughs> considered fully. Uh I think that uh the first thing that came to mind is actually fear. Uh oh. and what 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 I think happens is we're born, right? We come up most of the time in a family that's a, that's a bit of a container that helps us form who we are this first pass iteration of 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 who we are and to varying degrees that container might be safe and make us feel maybe is a good reflection of of God's love maybe less so i think it 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 depends on the situation but i think over time we come to see the world around us as like a scary threatening place we come to question like our own sense of belonging in it of of our own lovability there's a really interesting model uh, that i encountered a few years back it, i don't remember the name of the book but it was talking about um something that's really common that ends up happening uh for teenagers even more so if they're raised in households that have a strong faith life is a lot of times they can either become more either hypocritical or they can fall away from the faith or they can um there's a couple other examples, uh, but but what they were basically saying is like at a certain point, as a child becomes more and more aware, there's a phase of their life where, where they become more and more aware of their own maybe like failings or mm. weakness or lack of strength, 
lack of virtue while simultaneously becoming aware of like uh, how great God is in like contraposition to themselves. And it's like, unless they can see that like mercy fills that gap, it actually puts them in an untenable position where psychologically it's very, very difficult for them to deal with the cognitive dissonance that's created there. Right. And so they end up living like double lives or they do this or that. And I think that, I mean, you actually truthfully see that even play out much later in life, right? Sometimes you'll see people who have like very, they're very, very maybe pious in one way, but they struggle really strongly in another way because it's like there's a, probably there's there's a performative aspect to some of their faith and it's hard for them to maybe receive God's love. So I think, I think that, and this is, you know, it's interesting when you ask that question, I've never done it as like a psych, like a, like a research project. So I'm, I'm maybe projecting some of my own, my own experience, but it strikes me to be true that it's on some level, there's, there's fear that enters in and it's like that, uh, story of Peter on the water and mm-hmm. you start, you start kind of sinking. And then, and then when you come back around, it's this movement back to trust. And I think my own path has been my own ability to let go of some of the production-based stuff, my own ability to simplify, my own ability to be present, to even just be receptive. Because part of what we're talking about is like a real preference for activity, for doing, 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 rather than receiving, mm. right? For us, like feeling like we have to be moving things forward. But part of that also is sometimes it's like we see God is on the back of the tandem bike and we want him to pedal and we're on the front and control, right? But I think at a certain point, it's like, the roles reverse and that idea of letting go of control of not being the person in charge of not um of having a little bit of like maybe even darkness to knowing what the right thing is but moving more into trust i think that that's the trajectory that wasn't i don't know if i answered your exact no, question you did. i'm just you did. answering yeah. it honestly no yeah. I, that that tandem bicycle image is great because we do we we put god i mean when we were Growing up, every high school retreat talks about how you got to let Jesus be in the driver's seat, not just put him in the trunk or the back seat or the passenger seat, but you got to give him that control. Theoretically, it's very easy to say that. It's very difficult to do that in practice after you hit a certain point. I almost wonder if, if like the rhythms of the church, the rhythms of a monk's day are the only way to actually be able to live rightly ordered. So this is what's really, really really interesting to me. One of the, one of the things is, uh, like I'm really interested in, in the questions of why, right? So mm-hmm. at one point, something that was really, really helpful for me was discovering the concepts behind the theology of the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and not so much from the standpoint of like sexual teaching, like that's all fine and good, but it was more so thinking in terms of like, oh, there's actually a reason why everything is set up the way it's set up. Mm -hmm. Like the fact we're in bodies, the fact that our bodies mean something, the fact that kind of like everything has a certain level of meaning. It opened up a certain um, maybe understanding of transcendence I hadn't held previously. But I think about time as the same thing, like because there's like our universe could have been created in any way. And yet it was created in a very specific way. Mm. And this idea of rhythms is built into the way that actually our universe and world functions. Like it's it's built into it. And what does that actually reveal? And then you also see this, there is like a beat to things, right? It's almost like there's a beat to to life. There's a beat to the seasons. There's a beat to the liturgical year. And then you even see, like, if you look at the Old Testament, it's almost like there's a beat there where there's like people draw close and then they pull back and then they draw close. And like one of the most common things that I feel like God is saying is in the Old Testament is like, remember who you are. Remember, you're my people. Remember who I am. And that just keeps on coming back around and around and around. 
because we have a tendency to forget, right? And I think that's ultimately mm. what a lot of the liturgical year is, is it's, it's a structure, a technology almost of sorts. It's very similar actually to monasticism. And mm-hmm. I, it, it's part of monasticism within like the Western version of monasticism. But it's it's this, I mean, there's an Eastern version too, but there's this um this this idea of this cadence of, of bringing back this remembrance you know the thing is is like the liturgical year you could spend and i'm sure people do spend their entire life understanding like the richness in the why behind every single thing you know what i mean like there's i don't know i'm i'm not I'm, i could go and just nerd out actually like thinking about the different things like even like if you really dive into like the robustness in the meaning and the transcendent meaning of like advent and how that's not even just some like abstracted thing but what that means for us personally or i mean there's 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 so much there and we gloss over it. It's like uh, ice skating or something, right? And there's the whole lake underneath and we just stay on the surface a lot of times. Anyways. Yeah. Well, okay. So you said this. I, I had to write this note. Um, you said there's a beat and like you can even see it reflected in nature. And we did this on purpose in the church because we're a bunch of nerds in the church. John the Baptist's feast day is the day that the days start to get shorter. Like the light starts to disappear from the world when John the Baptist arrives because he must decrease because when Christ arrives, then the days start to get longer again and light slowly comes back. And I never knew that. My science teacher husband pointed that out to me on John the Baptist feast day this summer. I was like, I don't think that's true. And I like went and double checked it and, and Googled it, and like asked a priest friend and he's like, yeah, it's actually like one of these very tiny things that the church does that most people don't know about, but it's such an incredible a little fun fact, but also like this reality, the beats of our of our world, the beats of our church, the beats of our lives. We could keep going. Um, you need your own podcast. Maybe you already have one, but you definitely should be talking about these ideas in a lot of different places because I think they can really change people's lives. But we, we're ending all our conversations this season. And this is our teaser episode. So you're the first one um, talking to people about their favorite liturgical season. Like, do you have a part of the church year? that is really meaningful to you? And is there something you do in that liturgical season that just kind of brings life to your home, to, to your day, that, that you just, you, you can't miss it? It's an unmissable tradition within your family. Yeah, I'll, I'll say, I'll, I'm going to answer that in <laughs> like three parts. Yeah. So one thing is, what's been fascinating for me is over time, my experience of the liturgical year and of just like the seasons in general have changed. Really dramatically, like like it's 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 the sort of thing where I remember I was in high school and I had a teacher who was explaining, oh, you know, actually, like Easter is the most important holiday. It's not Christmas, and I remember being like, what? <laughs> like that that doesn't sound right. Like Christmas is obviously like the big thing, and even when I heard that intellectually, it didn't it wasn't meaningful to me. Yeah, right. And now it's, I think this last Easter, there were like multiple points where I felt like like crying, like during like the. The, the liturgy, right? Because there's 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 something so I think I tapped into the meaning a bit more. It's like when you were when you're talking about paying attention to that light, right? And the light decreasing, and even just like the actual experience of like what is that like, right? Of noticing it, of it, of it going beyond head, like going mm-hmm. beyond the head to like the heart and the yeah. spiritual level. And I think that in general, that's happened more over time for me. And so Lent has actually become a really incredible season for me, insofar as um you know, it used to be a it used to be a season about like deprivation, and I would actually enter into it from a standpoint of like I'm bad, 
Mm. And I know I'm bad. So I need to go and cut some things out and like try and make it up to <laughs> God because of like these different bad things that are in me. Now it's more like, man, I, I'm just going to create some space. Like I'm going to go into like the desert because like that's actually, it's almost like a retreat. Like it, it's not, I guess there's like suffering, but it's like a joyful suffering. Like it, it, it makes sense to me. I used to never really understand when like saints would like talk about like how they're I don't know, like they're, they're suffering, but it's like a joyful suffering. I understand that in, in part now, maybe it's still a little bit veiled, but it, it's like there, right? So like Lent is actually like more of a joyful season in some ways. But I would answer, I would say actually Advent is something I really, I really, really like. And I don't know why that is. Maybe there's the connotations of when I was a kid and there's, there's, there is something from, from just a, from like the crock pot that we're sitting in, in like Western culture, there's, there is a little bit more support, maybe more distraction, but it's definitely a marked season, right? Whereas like yeah. Lent's not really marked in your daily experience. Like you don't go to the store and it's like, Hey, it's Lent everybody. I mean, maybe it depends on maybe what store you're at, but, <laughs> uh, but, but with Advent, there is something, and there's something so quiet and so humble and like pregnant about it. Yeah. And uh, and, and for me, I live in Buffalo as well, right? So it starts getting really cold. It gets dark. <laughs> it gets it gets like snowy. It's And snow creates this actual deafening effect. Like yeah. when it's snowing, it gets really quiet. And you feel like you're in this little, like you're in this womb of sorts, right? Yeah, that's what Advent globe. feels like. Yeah. yeah. And it's, and, and that's, and there's something about that. Maybe that feeling of being held in the, for me right now, I think that's probably the season that's most easy to access like a feeling of, of wonder and and like the mystery of it all, yeah. right? And, but I think it's going to change over time for me. Yeah, I like that an open ended answer. It's Advent now. Um, <laughs> we'll have to we'll do a repeat in a year and see if it was Lent this past year. Tell us, you know, somebody hearing this and and thinks, okay, like I'm on board with this. I'm I'm trying to be productive, but it's actually not satisfying my life. I'm trying to be efficient. I'm looking for these rhythms. I don't know how to integrate this into my life, but I want to start. And they're listening to this show they're listening to the series, what's your word of encouragement? I mean, other than the sales pitch for Monk Manual, which all of you should go buy, but but like, what is the invitation to try to live with this, this intentionality with the church in this integrated life? Okay, so I think, I think the most simple and practical thing that can be done is to try to pay attention to the question, what is God teaching me? And the reason I say that is because sometimes when we're reflecting, even if we're entering into like an examination, for example, we're trying to get a good sense of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's like uh, going to the doctor and you're getting a checkup, but oftentimes it can be so flavored by negative emotion that I don't feel like we actually enter into that process in a clinical way, like a doctor would, right? And and I think God actually views us at a minimum in a clinical way, but but it's probably actually extremely much more tender than a clinical way, right? So so there's so much mercy in that. And I think that there's this um, I think that asking the question of what is God teaching me, whether that's daily or weekly, can can become something that if if you say journal about it every night or you ask yourself that question. What happens is you naturally go back and you look over your life and you look at what are the signs, like what are the things that happen? What are the things happening in my relationships and my prayer life? What are the things that maybe happened when I went to mass? Like, what is it? And it presumes that God is active in your life. It presumes that there, God is not a um, a, a distant, abstract uh, figure that did 
his thing and then and then left, but is actually intimately involved and in that there is a process to your life that's playing out. If you can do that on a weekly or daily basis, you start to do that on an ongoing basis. And the mm -hmm. question is just there, but then you're in conversation and you start wondering, I wonder, uh, you start seeing that all these things are connected and something ends up clicking. And then trust becomes almost a self-evident principle because you end up seeing God's hand in so many things. Because I think God's hand is always there but we don't often see it because we're not actually paying attention. Mm. And so this is a very simple, easy way to enter into that, uh, that uh, for me has been, has been really profound in, 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 in uh, you know, we could spend an hour probably talking about this, but I think there's so many secondary effects as well of how this opens up um, a lot of different channels of grace in, in someone's life. But that, that would be, I think my recommendation. One, one last thing on that, that also fits perfectly with this idea of liturgical living, because then when you're, really entering into these different things, you're you're also realizing that the church has its own design and its own intelligence behind it, and that God communicates through the church and even through the rhythms of the church. So that's part of it too, right? That's not even something that's like secondary or ancillary. It's all part of one whole that you're experiencing, right? Uh, which I think makes it, again, this really robust, incredible, rich, meaningful thing. Great answer. We could keep going. I um, This was such a delight, <laughs> such a such a treat. Uh, first thing in the morning. Where can we follow you, Stephen? Where can we follow the work that you do with Monk Manual? If somebody wants to go grab a Monk Manual, participate in the in the Life Atlas course that you guys do. Where's all that? Yeah, so you can go to monkmanual.com. We're also on most social media things at Monk Manual. Um, so yeah, sign up for our email list. I send out little reflection things once a week. We have some different courses. I also actually am just on the tail end, depending on when this this uh, episode comes out, on the tail end of creating like a little hour long audio workshop. Not necessarily focused as much in this uh, as what we we're talking about today, but still would be really helpful. And I think that if there's if if any of these things are resonating, uh, there's there's a lot there. And I really do believe that this is um. It's it's important things in in that it can really help individuals. A lot of these ideas can really help individuals move out of that modern productivity mindset into something that's more whole person. And I think when that happens, a lot more changes than you'd imagine. So yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. I am really grateful. Yeah, this was wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. You know, sometimes I, I get to sit down in an interview and I I feel like I'm talking to somebody that I've known for a really long time. That's what it felt like when I got to chat with Stephen. And we got to have this this really in-depth conversation about productivity and the way the human person pursues various interests and things and, and what it means for our mind to really kind of grapple with not just planning, but but how sometimes we we avoid really digging into that spiritual rhythm within our life, how we're scared of what it would look like to kind of hand over our day. I think there's a deeper challenge in what Stephen had to say, and it's it's this. I was thinking about it, you know, an hour or two after we wrapped up the interview and I was reviewing my notes. This idea that, you know, we're born with this this spiritual aptitude and we we kind of lose it over time because of of the exhaustion of life and the chaos and busyness of our of our productivity and the various responsibilities that come our way. It's very, very easy to kind of drift away from that spiritual sensibility. But maybe Living in rhythm with the liturgical year is the way that we restore, that we revive that spiritual sense. Just as a, a small testimony from my own life, later on this season, we'll talk to 
Uh, Alyssa Tippergen, the creator of Catholic Family Crate, which is just a very basic subscription service that sends liturgical living resources right to your door. And just a, a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated the feasts of St. Augustine and St. Monica. And inside the Catholic Family Crate box comes this small image every month to commemorate a couple of different saints according to the feast days in that particular month. And so obviously in the month of August, they included St. Augustine and St. Monica in a side-by-side image. And I, I woke up one morning and I came into the kitchen and my daughters were sitting at the kitchen table having breakfast. And I had this image of St. Monica and St. Augustine set up on the windowsill right above our kitchen table. And my, my daughter, Rose, age six, was holding it. And she said, Mom, good, you're up. And I kind of took it as a little insult. Like, come on, I'm only like five minutes past you getting up to get out here in the, in the kitchen to grab my cup of coffee. And she said, what is he holding? And she turned the picture of St. Augustine to me. And St. Augustine is often depicted holding his heart because of that famous line that he wrote in the Confessions, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. And she held it up to me and I looked at it and I said, oh, that's his heart. And she she looked at me kind of horrified. Did he pull it out of his chest? And I said, no, baby, it's a quote. And so I, I, I rattled the quote off, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. I said, the heart symbolizes. And before I could even finish the sentence, she went, his love for God. And I said, yeah. And she said, oh, okay. She put the picture back up on the, the little stand where I had it sitting on the windowsill. A few minutes passed by. She's having her breakfast. And she went, why did he not love God first? You know, she'd been thinking about the line that I'd rattled off. Our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. And so we were able to have a conversation about some of the ways that we don't love God the way we're supposed to. And in that moment, for about 10 minutes, on a, at the time, Tuesday morning, it was the day after St. Augustine's feast day, she and I had a conversation about what sometimes distracts us from loving God and what can actually lead us to loving God more. And we would not have had that conversation had I not had an image of a saint whose feast day was the day before set up on the windowsill because I wanted that image of the saint visible because that was the feast day. Liturgical living can lead to some incredible conversations. The rhythms of the church can lead to an inordinate amount of peace in our lives. Slowing down and reclaiming a spiritual sensibility can take us deeper into the heart of the Father. And so this season is really all about that. What does the liturgical calendar offer us? when it comes to a culture of Catholicism in our home, when it comes to practices and traditions that, that lead us ever closer to the heart of the Father. That's the goal here. We'd love it if you'd subscribe to the show, follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please share it with friends and family, post it on your social media, give us a rating and a review down in the review section of the show that helps more people find it. You can always go to our website, AveMariaPress.com. And right up at the top, there's a big banner that says free resources. If you click on it, it'll take you to the Ave Explorers page where you can sign up to get these emails right into your inbox every week. We'll be doing this for the next few weeks. Follow us on social media, Ave Maria Press on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and all the other social media places that people are on these days. We'll be posting some exclusive social media content to really help you dig into the liturgical season we're in right now which of course at the moment is ordinary time, but we're inching ever closer to Advent. We're so excited for this season and we hope that this little teaser, this, this look at what reclaiming a spiritual sensibility with regards to the liturgical year, what that can look like in your life. I'm so excited to take this journey with you. 
into the church's liturgical calendar. I can't wait for you to meet our guests. Know that we're praying for you. Know that we're excited to explore with you. And thanks for being with us on Ave Explores Liturgical Living today. Today.